I would invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptural text, either the one you brought with you this morning or the one that's there in the pew rack in front of you, and turn to that passage that Pastor Dave just read a moment ago from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, last week we began a new study uh, based on the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you weren't here, uh, just as a way of refreshing your memory and helping you to catch up with where we are, the great apostle had, um, in his missionary call from God, had planted a church in the great city of Corinth a city in Greece, strategically located, uh, a, co- a very cosmopolitan city, uh, the residence of Corinth, the second largest city in all of Greece, the fourth largest in the entire Roman Empire, uh, sat at a strategic crossroads. Uh, merchant ships came there. In fact, as I explained last week, uh, the city of Corinth, came, because of its location, became a place of great commerce. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a city that was uh, replete with cultural entertainment and the arts. Uh, It it was also, in many ways, a very immoral city. As I mentioned, uh, the temple of Aphrodite uh, was there, and the cult uh, uh, promulgated... uh, an idea of illicit sex. In fact, the priestesses and the priests of the temple of Aphrodite would be sent out from the temple at night into the streets of Corinth, selling their bodies as prostitutes. And uh, it just uh, reflected on the entire city and its culture. Uh, And though Paul had been a part of that church, had been the pioneer, the one who had actually planted that church and preaching the glorious gospel of Christ to the residents of Corinth, uh, when it comes time later, almost six years later, to uh, kind of in a pastoral way write to the Corinthians, to his brothers and sisters there in the church, uh, he's writing to a group of people that though they had great zeal originally for the Lord and were uh, astounded by the glories of God's grace, yet over the passage of time, these Corinthian Christians had wandered from their uh, established foundations. And what had happened over this period of time uh, was that there were all kinds of doctrines and teachings that had been imbibed by the Corinthian Christians, and uh, they should have known better. They strayed, they wandered spiritually during the time that Paul, the apostle, the church planter, had been away from them. In fact, many of the Corinthian Christians were not interested in the revelation of God that had been given in His Son, Jesus Christ, or the revelation that had been given in His Word. But many of the Corinthian Christians were caught up in speculations and novel ideas and theories. They were big into flash and whiz-bang and signs and wonders and all the rest. In fact, they had divorced, in a very real way, they had divorced their belief from their behavior. There was a disconnect between what they believed and how they lived out their Christian life. In general, when it came to spiritual things, the church at Corinth 
was a church that was pretty much a disaster of a church. It is not a church that any pastoral candidate would have been seeking uh, to get, uh, to candidate for, because it was a, a church that was pretty much in a mess. And the church was filled with sexual immorality. And people were suing each other, litigating their, their injustices in the courts of Corinth. Members of the church were arguing over which spiritual gift was the best. They sought out these signs and wonders, the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy. Marriages in the church were falling apart. Believers were being married to unbelievers. People were judging each other on things that that were not moral issues and and then they looked down their noses in a judgmental sort of way at one another. People in the church at Corinth were coming to the Lord's table to celebrate the table of remembrance. remembrance. They were drunk as skunks. And in the process, they gave no consideration to the poor and to the needy. The Corinthian church might be referred to as a fellowship of confusion. It was chaotic in the life of that church. There were factions and divisions. And in that sense, it seems to me that there is a resemblance. In fact, I think there are striking resemblances to the 21st century church and the church at Corinth. Now, as we saw last week in the first nine verses of chapter 1 in the opening greeting that the Apostle Paul in this typical format that uh, characterizes his epistles, Paul reminds the believers in Corinth of their identity in Christ, who they are in Christ Jesus. He talks about their position in Christ. He says, now that you are in Christ, that's one of Paul's favorite ways of describing the redeemed people of God, that you are in Christ. You've stepped out of darkness and into light. Now that you are in Christ, now that you've been redeemed, now that you are saved by the precious blood of Christ, he identifies them and says, you are holy ones. The word he uses is the word hagios in the Greek. It means saints. And we looked at that, that that is our true identity, even though we don't have it all together and God is still working on us and fashioning us and refining us and purifying us and making us into the image of His precious Son, Jesus. Still, positionally, the truth of Scripture is this, that when we are in Christ, we are saints, everyone. And Paul uh, uh, talks to them about the benefits of sainthood. And he thanks God not for what they have done, what these Corinthians have done, but what God has done by His gracious work, what God has done in them. Now, having stated their position and reminding them of their true identity in Christ, he then turns his sights in verse 10 to begin to exhort them about some of the problems that the church is encountering. And what you will notice from verse 10 to the very end of chapter 16, to the end of the letter, is that Paul will address one, uh, one problem, one situation after another. So we kind of need to buckle our seatbelts because he's going to talk a little bit like a Dutch uncle 
to, to these brothers and sisters and exhort them to learn to behave in a manner that begins to line up with their true position in Jesus Christ. He says, begin to act, begin to behave uh, according to your identity in Christ. And the first thing he deals with, the first problem he approaches, is this whole idea of unity in the church. You see, the church in Corinth was experiencing uh, serious disunity. Uh, various factions, uh, party affiliations, uh, people within the church had had polarized themselves into a, a series of, of cliques. Uh, he learned this from some people from Chloe's household. Apparently, some slaves from Chloe's household had arrived in Ephesus from where he writes this letter and had reported to Paul that among other disturbing conditions that existed in the church at Corinth, that there were quarrelsome divisions that were creeping into the fellowshipping life of the Christians there in Corinth, and it was destroying any sense of unity within the body of Christ. Now, I want you to understand that the disunity that the church was experiencing in Corinth was not disunity that was based on doctrinal differences. It was not doctrinal in nature. While there may have been some doctrinal problems in Corinth, and we will see that as we continue to plow through this epistle, uh, the particular disunity that Paul is addressing here is not of that, and not part of that. Now let me say, I believe that there are times in the life of the church, in the body of Christ, when doctrinal essentials are at stake, when truth is being watered down or distorted, I think it is essential that some people stand up and be counted and, and go toe-to-toe with doctrinal heresy. Uh, I hope that you would be in that company of people, that you would join the parade of saints, that if you were part of a church body that was wandering doctrinally and buying into uh, uh, spiritual lies and distortions, that you would stand up and be counted. I hope that you would be among them. I want you to know I'll be at the head of the line. Because when it comes to doctrinal essentials, uh, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and take the gloves off and say, truth is truth, and we're not going to step back from that. But the issue of division in the church at Corinth was not over a doctrinal issue. The division in the church there uh, happened to be over dividing into various camps lined up with their favorite preacher, their favorite teacher. Groups had been formed on the basis of, I like this one over that one. They held a popularity contest and apparently there had been four nominees. The, there was the Paul group within the church at Corinth. Uh, the, the first group, the Paul group, wanted to be loyal to the Apostle Paul. After all, he had been the founder of the church. He was the founding pastor. He'd been the one that many of them had come to faith in Christ uh, because of his, his teaching and his fire for God. And they'd come, their eyes had been opened spiritually because of Paul's ministry. 
And so they decided that Paul deserved their undivided loyalty. We are of Paul. According to the text, there was not only a Paul group, but there was an Apollos group as well. Uh, Apparently, Apollos was a a young preacher who had visited Corinth and who had actually, uh, as an itinerant preacher, had preached there in the city of Corinth for a time. According to Acts chapter 18, we are told that he was a fairly eloquent preacher. He could captivate an audience. Uh, People loved to listen to Apollos preach. He he, he apparently was able to use eloquent speech. He He was a smooth cat. And people liked him. And so they kind of followed Apollos. And they said, we're not of Paul, we're of Apollos. Then within that church, there was yet a third group, uh, the Peter group, the Cephas group. We don't know for sure what they they found and idolized in Peter. Perhaps it was that uh, this Peter group might have been uh, part of the working class, the blue-collar group. Somehow they were able to identify with this tough, gruff fisherman from Galilee that Peter had followed Christ so closely. And they said, we're not of Paul, we're not of Apollos. Yes, Apollos can preach, but we're of Peter. And then there was a fourth group. According to the text, it tells us that there was a Jesus group. It's rather surprising, isn't it, that that Paul would lambaste them about the fact that they were following Jesus. Apparently, there was a false piety among this group. Uh, this group was wont to say, well, you can listen to all the, those other Bible teachers like Paul and Apollos and Peter, but we're not going to listen to anyone but Jesus. See, the problem was that they had got uh, carnally pride, and they looked down their noses, and dismissed all the other people who did not belong to their particular party, the Jesus group. I think it's interesting to notice that that Paul does not support or advocate any of the four groups. In fact, he, he comes against all four. He doesn't even advocate the Jesus group. He says that they're all wrong because of an attitude. And because of their carnal pride and their attitude... They are actually responsible for dividing the church into factions, into groups. And he says in verse 10, I, I appeal to you, brother, uh, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I, to put away these quarrelsome divisions. Uh, the word he uses there is actually the Greek word schizmata, from which we get the English word schism, a tearing, like a tearing of a fabric. Paul says, Put away these factions. Put away these party affiliations. And he challenges the divisive spirit within this church by asking them in his letter three rhetorical questions, each of which assumes the answer is no. What are the questions he asks? The first is this. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? His point is that if the local body of believers, the local church, is in fact the body of Christ, which we are, then a divided body, it means a divided Christ, which to Paul is an unthinkable position. For in the mind of Paul, Christ is one. And because Christ is one and He is Lord of the church, then the church must demonstrate the same oneness that we find in the person of 
Christ. Is Christ divided? The answer that Paul wants to evoke is no, he is one. The second question he asks is, was Paul crucified for you? You see, some people were focusing their loyalties on Paul. Uh, They were uh, putting Paul in the place as a substitute in place of the one who was crucified for their sins and making Paul out to be their savior, which again was unthinkable to Paul. Christ was neither divided nor was Paul crucified for them, but instead Christ was. And then the third question he asked them is, were you baptized into the name of Paul? He asked them to step back to the point of baptism, that that marking of being a part of the Christian community, their public testimony that they now had become Christ's followers. And he says, won't you remember when you were baptized, whose name you were baptized, into whose name were you baptized? Was it Paul? In fact, he goes so much, it's almost like he goes back to his pastoral record to see who it was actually that he baptized when he was in Corinth. And he says, I remember baptizing Crispus, and I remember baptizing Gaius, and it seems to me that possibly I baptized the members of the household of Stephanus, but for the life of me, those are the only people that I can remember actually baptizing when I was there in Corinth. And I'm glad I didn't baptize any of the rest of you. There is that, that tendency, isn't there, among us to kind of pin our hopes uh, on the person who was God instrumentally used in our life to bring us into the kingdom of light and Christ. To uh, think highly of them. And there's nothing wrong in thinking highly of the instruments that God has used in our journey. But Paul is saying, I was not crucified for you. You were not baptized in my name. And... Friends, it seems to me that you can take Paul's name out of this and you can replace any name you will into this equation. Any, the name of any popular religious leader of today. And we have the same situation in the church today. John MacArthur was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Chuck Swindoll? Or Billy Graham? Or D. James Kennedy? Or Max Licato? Or Smith Wigglesworth? The problem in the Corinthian church was not confined to the first century Corinthians. The problem is alive and well in the church today. The church in every age has faced the temptation, and some have given way to the temptation, to exalt God's vessels, certain men, higher than they ought to. It would discourage you if I were to tell you how often I hear of congregations disintegrating under the pressure of such divisions. I remember well a young man in the ministry that I was mentoring in the ordination program He was fresh out of school. It was his first pastorate. And uh, he came to my study one day, and uh, we met monthly, and he came to my study one day, and 
we were just kind of reviewing what God had been doing in his life and in his ministry and how things were going in his first pastoral charge. And I could tell that he was really discouraged and downhearted. And as he began to, to talk about things, he said to me, he said, Rick, I am I am right on the verge of quitting. I'm right on the verge of giving up, of leaving the ministry altogether and going back to secular work. And as he unpacked his story, what he discovered was that members of his church were comparing this young man called of God, gifted with spiritual gifts and graces to lead a local body of believers, that people in his church were negatively comparing him to the radio and TV preachers that they listened to during the week. And there were people in the church that didn't like him because he didn't preach with the eloquence of Chuck Swindoll. They didn't like him because he didn't have the expertise in pastoral counseling like they heard from James Dobson every morning. They were critical and complaining and grumbling because he was not the gifted evangelist that they saw in Billy Graham in his great crusades. And this young man was about ready to give up ministry because of the Corinthian problem. The church in every age has faced the temptation to exalt certain servants higher than they ought to. But it's not only about servants, it's about differences that abound on every side that churches are prone to argue. There are all kinds of divisions over worship and how our Sunday services ought to be conducted. Differences over the type of music that we should include in our worship service. You've got the contemporary party affiliation that says, oh, we should only sing the liveliest of praise choruses. Bring out the band and the cymbals. Let's just sing that stuff. I'd be happy if we would just do that. And then in the same church, you have people who say, oh, no, let's sing the, the good old hymns. They have such theology in them, and they do, but they have such theology. We should only be singing out of the hymn book. I have no preferences. <laughs> but churches are being split over the type of music to use in worship. Churches are being split over what is appropriate for women to do in worship. There are differences over the nature of Christian ministry. There are differences over how we should educate our children and school them. There are differences over what it means to observe the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Some things that are appropriate for the Lord's Day and some things that are not. And there are substantial differences, sometimes harder to define, I grant you, but substantial differences on how we should live out the Christian life. That a good Christian would never go there. A good Christian would never do that. So Paul is not dealing here with a situation that was unique to the first century Corinthian church. He's dealing with a problem that surfaces always and everywhere where humans exist because there's carnal pride always and everywhere there is carnal pride and sin, there is division or at least the opportunity for it. It is sin that makes us proud. It is sin that makes us divide into camps and pride always Divides. It always divides. Here's the point of the message this morning. Like the Corinthians, 
we, as the church of Jesus Christ in this 21st century, need to ask ourselves if we are not indeed in danger of glorying in man instead of Christ. We must make doubly sure that as followers of Christ, that we are keeping our gaze on Jesus and not upon His servant. Listen to what John Piper, the senior pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church and a great Christian author, I commend his writings to you. Listen to what he says about this. Piper says, There is a great danger of taking pride in knowing and being associated with important people. Most of us feel like nobodies in a world where the media are constantly holding up the desirability of being well-known. So the way millions of people try to satisfy this desire is to line up behind someone who is somebody. We may read all their books, listen to all their tapes, we may listen to their daily radio programs and watch their television shows. We may go to their churches, take their classes, get on their mailing list, and get so familiar with their teaching and their ways of doing things, these are Piper's words, that we begin to idealize them and idolize them. And the effect of this vicarious ego trip is that anyone who is not on the same bandwagon is generally looked down upon, and the result is the emergence of factions and schisms and splits. Perhaps some of you this morning came through the front doors with your party hat on so to speak. You carry with you the ghost of some person that had a strong influence in your Christian life, which can be a great thing, but which I suspect for many has become very much akin to the spirit of what was happening in the church at Corinth. Do your attitudes and your ideas cause you to say, I am of A.B. Simpson. I am of John Calvin. I am of John Wesley. I am of Martin Luther. I am non-denominational. I am Presbyterian. I am Baptist. I am of Crocker. I am of Snyder. I am of Dre. I'm of the new kid, Stefano. I'm of Scott Taylor. I'm of Jim McDonald. I'm of Bob Hostetler. I'm of Jeff Lynch. I'm of WGOJ. I'm of WCTL. I'm of Family Radio. I'm of R.C. Spruill. I'm of John MacArthur. I'm of uh, Back to the Bible Hour. And in our carnal pride, we give place to sin and to disunity in the body of Christ. And we must always remember that these attitudes grieve the Holy Spirit and they give place and opportunity for discord in the body.
I did not plan to say this today, but it seems so appropriate to say it in relation to our text. I am deeply saddened when it is reported back to me that on weeks in which I'm away from the congregation, either on vacation or other ministry activity, I'm deeply saddened to get reports back of people who will call the church office or turn to the Saturday church page to find out who's preaching on Sunday and thus determine whether or not they will attend the house of worship. Shame on us. And if you think you're doing me a favor You aren't. It's like putting a knife in my heart when I hear that. If this church is based on my personality and my ministry and my leadership and its growth and its measure of success is based on me, God have mercy on me because I have mismanaged this ministry. This church is based on the foundation of Jesus Christ. You were not baptized into my name or to Stefano's name or Marsha's name or Dre's name. I was not crucified for you, nor was your community life group leader or your Sunday school teacher. And Paul addresses this so very clearly, and his reaction to this challenge that is facing the Corinthian church is to say, what I want you to think about is the gospel of Christ. What I want you to think about is about your sin and your guilt, and think about the the love and the mercy and grace of God in Christ. I want you to think about what you deserve from a holy God and then think about what heaven will be like. I want you to think about how utterly inappropriate it is for you, a sinner saved by grace, to look down in judgment on somebody else. I want you to look at your brothers and sisters, especially those with whom you don't agree. I want you to look into their eyes and realize that they too have been saved by the same precious blood of Christ. And then Paul says, and then I want you to look at the cross of Jesus. And let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. To the world the cross is foolishness, but to the one who believes, it is the power of God. It is a message that that stumps the wise of this world. But in the cross of Christ, dear brothers and sisters, Paul says, is God's power. You see, when you look at the person of Christ and the cross of Christ, I believe that all divisions will begin to disappear. There has been no other cure throughout the years like the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ cuts across all of our human categories and systems. It wipes out all of our petty distinctions between I'm Calvin, I'm Arminian, I'm this, I'm that. The cross strips away our illusions and brings the pride of men tumbling down to the ground. 
And so Paul exhorts the church, and through his writing, exhorts the church today, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So my counsel and my exhortation to the church today is the same as that of Paul. First Alliance Church, make Jesus your boast. Not the preacher, not the church, not the denominational affiliation, not your particular party affiliation. Let no one be guilty of saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas. But let us all say together with your voices united, I fix my eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever we exalt the vessel, we run the risk of diminishing the ministry and the supremacy of Christ. Let's get our eyes off of the vessels and get our eyes fixed on Jesus. And I believe with all of my heart, if we would make it our top priority to honor Christ and to learn to live our lives according to His truth, that we will experience a blessed unity that will magnify and exalt the name of the Lord together and will draw the sinful world, it will draw the sinful world when they see our unity to the person of Christ. And that, in my mind, should be our top priority. And it is my prayer that it will be true of our church that we would be able to be one in Christ in what we say, in what we think, that Christ may be honored and experience what David wrote about in his wonderful song, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like, David says, it is like oil poured on the head running down on the beard, down upon the collar of Aaron's robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For where there is unity, David says, the Lord bestows his blessing. Do you want to be blessed, church? Then we need to be unified. For where there is unity, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. United we stand. Divided we fall. Let us pray together. Thank you, Lord, for our time in your word this morning. How thankful I am, Lord, for this particular word which has reminded us of that which we should do for your sake, for Jesus' sake, who loved us and bought us with his own precious blood. Father, I pray that like oil being poured out on the head, that you would would pour out on us a sweet spirit of humility and love for one another. That in essentials, Lord, that that we would stand for truth, but that in all things we would display charity. And that through our unity that comes from fixing our gaze on the Lord of the church, Jesus, that we might be one in our mission and our message, and that the world may know that the Father sent the Son because we are one. 
Have mercy on us, O God, for the petty camps and distinctions that we have created within churches today and pray that you will help us to turn our eyes off of your special servants. We thank you for them, but that you would help us to turn our eyes from them and fix our gaze on the Lord Jesus until he comes to take us home to be with him forever. We pray this in Christ's most holy name. Amen.